Cancers Australia. You're listening to Radio Rare, the podcast where we share the stories of those in and around the rare and less common cancer community. A rare cancer is defined as one which has fewer than six diagnoses per 100,000 of the population. And a less common cancer is one which has fewer than 12 diagnoses per 100,000 of the population. And each year, more than 52,000 Australians are diagnosed with a rare or less common cancer. That's 144 people per day, or one person every 10 minutes. Rare and less common cancers also claim the lives of over 25,000 Australians each year. On today's episode, we chat with Biopharma Dispatch founder and publisher Paul Cross. The government just doesn't want to pay what the company is asking. And yes, they can be expensive. They can be very expensive. They can be five, ten thousand dollars a month. But if you're talking about giving someone three, six, nine, twelve months, even several years more life, to me, it's, it's why are we even discussing it? Now, Paul discusses his role in biopharmaceuticals, which are defined as pharmaceutical drug products produced in living systems from biological sources, such as sugars proteins, living cells, or tissue. Some examples of biopharmaceuticals are vaccines, hormones, blood, blood components, gene therapies, and living medicines used in cell therapy. Paul also discusses biotechnology, which is the technology that uses biological systems or living organisms to develop or create products such as biopharmaceuticals. Many forms of modern biotechnology rely on DNA technology, such as sequencing, analysis, and editing DNA. Reporting today is RCA's Dr. Emily Isham. Since the introduction of Medicare, the Australian healthcare system has been seen as a world leader. However, behind the scenes, the treatment available for rare and less common cancer patients has been far from world leading. Speaking with Paul Cross... He gave us some insights around what goes on behind the process of approving new cancer treatments approved by the PBS or Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme and the Health Technology Assessment. Paul began his career in healthcare in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and one of his first jobs was working for a federal health minister on the PBS. Today, he is the founder and publisher of Biopharma Dispatch. He also writes articles for biotechnology devices and private healthcare in general. To begin our conversation, Paul discusses how cancer treatments are decided by the PBS. The Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisors uh, um, Committee is is the the body that advises the health minister about whether or not a therapy, a new treatment, an existing treatment should be funded for a particular disease. Obviously, it's now spending a lot of its time focused on new cancer therapies. They use a, you know, what's described as an evidence-based approach. So companies take the results of clinical trials, crunch them into an economic model, and that spits out, well, this is what we think this therapy is worth, loosely speaking, and this is the sort of price we ask. And then 
generally, you know, often often when it, what happens is the company and the committee and the department of health officials that support that committee engage in a negotiation about prices and the the, the patient group that that should be able to, to gain subsidised access to that therapy. So these variables uh, in the economic model are often what companies and decision makers spend a lot of time debating. And if you if you modify one of these things in a little way, it has a huge impact on whether or not a therapy should be funded. And this is getting particularly difficult, more challenging, I suppose, as the new cancer technologies uh, emerge. They are, you know, we're arguably entering an era of seriously transformative innovation. So not necessarily innovation or new treatments that offer a small improvement on an existing treatment. These are treatments that uh, offer very significant uh, additional benefits in terms of life expectancy compared to uh, existing treatments. And, and, and I think it's going to be really, really hard for our system, which was designed in the 1990s, to be able to, to cope with those. It can be easy to think that the government sees healthcare as an expense rather than an investment. And Paul thinks that's due to the nature of the system it can quite easily be turned into a cost discussion. I don't think that's unique to medicines, but I think I think it's easier in medicines. It's easier because the nature of the system, it's easier to turn it into a, a cost discussion because it's the nature, in the nature of the system, it's, it's more difficult than other areas of the health system. Uh, so medicine, medicines, uh, probably more than any other thing in the health system, have an enormous amount of evidence gathered during their, their development and in many ways that's weaponised against them by the system yeah. uh, and that makes it that makes it difficult but I, I think also for patients it's incredibly frustrating because the system is often presented in a particular way and I, and I, and I don't think it works that way at all. I mean I, I think the language language that's often used about the affordability of medicine I think it's, it's just ridiculous because essentially what they're saying is we're not sure your life is worth extending or saving. Mm. Uh, you know, governments spend a lot of money on a lot of things, and I think if you were going to invest in anything, it would be to allow someone to spend a few more months with their family. Yeah, we don't we don't need a system that just evolves and adds. We need a system that has a revolution, really, rather than an evolution, don't we? We need to completely change from the bottom up based on the the new technologies that are coming in. Yeah, and legacy because because when the Australian system for putting for subsidising drugs was introduced in the 1990s, it was considered the best in the world at the absolute forefront of the world. But that, that's created a historic legacy where you know it's it's become biblical almost in terms of its institutionalisation, and people uh, can be reluctant to criticise it or to question it or to argue that, well, it's actually not really serving its purpose anymore, particularly in relation to these new therapies. And we really need to take a root and branch look at whether it's serving its primary purpose. You know, we don't want to get into a position like they are in New Zealand. But if, but if we don't accept that the system needs to be reformed, uh, I can see a situation where decision makers tip over into to focusing more on justifying decisions rather than making the best decisions. The Australian public seem to accept what we are given. This is partly due to us already having a good healthcare system in Medicare. It creates doubt and guilt in our minds when we look at all the countries overseas that don't 
even have a healthcare system like ours. Adding new pharmaceuticals can be a long, drawn-out process due to the confined discussion which happens behind closed doors and which involves a lot of technical people, officials and advisory bodies. I think this is where language becomes an issue because a lot of the discussion around the PBS is confined to a very small group of people. So you have a lot of technical people and officials and advisory bodies and they engage in a lot of conversations about what's in the best interest of patients. What, what they tend to do, I think, is to invite patients into the discussion once the decision has almost been made. If you uh, don't change the fundamental basis on which decisions are made, there's no point having patient input. You can include all sorts of patients patients on all sorts of decision-making bodies, but if the criteria for decisions doesn't change and doesn't properly allow consideration of consumer input, then what's the point? Remember that the decision... The basis on which they make a decision whether or not to fund a medicine in Australia is about evidence. It's not about consumer input. But the legislative framework under which this system operates does not allow for any formal consideration of consumer input. There are consumer representatives on the committee, but the basis on which they make those decisions is guided by a legislative framework, which is all about clinical evidence and cost-effectiveness. And cost-effectiveness is a fancy word for price. Mm. It's it's a, it's a price negotiation. So I think I think if we're going to really consider properly uh, uh, allowing consumer input into, into decision making, then we have to look at the decision making process. We've seen it with CAR T therapy, where these incredible new cell therapies. You now they're very early on, but but that, but they are incredibly innovative, and for some people represent a very dramatic improvement, and they're going to get better and better in the years ahead. Now. The, the review process, the government mandated review process is going on and on and on and on. And I think we're almost at month 18. It's been funded for a very small group of patients at the moment, but there's a much bigger patient group waiting for funded access. Whilst that formal evaluation process sorts itself out, the government is sending people overseas, funding people to go overseas to get access uh, in, in the US. Now, to me, that is just evidence of the complete breakdown of the system. Funding patients to travel overseas is not only a huge cost for the Australian government, but creates unwanted stress and pressure on families who have to uproot their entire lives to move overseas for a short period of time. Coming up after this short break. The problem is the system is always presented in a way that would leave people with the impression that it's really doing well. But beneath the surface, there is a system that is Uh, experiencing great strain. That's coming up after these words from our patient support team. Hello, this is Ailey at Rare Cancers Australia. How can I help you today? Hi, I was just wondering if you could help me with... Our specialist cancer navigators can help you with the challenges that come with a rare cancer diagnosis. Our services are free and there is no criteria for accessing support from us. We understand that every situation is unique and no two people are the same. If you have been diagnosed with a rare or less common cancer, our patient support team look forward to hearing from you. Call us on 1800 257 600 or email support at rarecancers.org.au.
Welcome back to Radio Rare. When we left, Dr. Emily and Paul were discussing some of the shortfalls that need to be addressed within the Australian healthcare system, particularly the long process that revolutionary treatment for rare cancer patients must go through before being approved. Dr. Emily Isham continues her conversation with Paul Cross. Once learning the slow and dragged out process of how new cancer treatments are approved here in Australia, it is also puzzling to learn that most of these drugs and treatments have already been approved in other countries. Why wouldn't you just say, okay, if we're having to do this, we recognise based on advice from the Commonwealth Medical Officer that it is worth sending patients overseas, disrupting their lives, their families' lives in that way, wouldn't you kind of think, well, if our evaluation committee, if our formal evaluation process cannot deal with this in a timely way, then the problem is the evaluation process. You know, I think there is a big role for patients in advocating on this because I think, I think in some ways it's a complete abomination and, and we shouldn't, as citizens of this country, I think, accept that something should take 18 months or two years to evaluate. It's inhumane. Mm, mm. So much suffering on the other end. And, and these are drugs that have already had approval in other countries, is that right? Yeah, well, and they've had been approved in other countries. Most Europe, European countries have approved them. I think the UK has approved two of them almost a year ago now. But I just don't think it's acceptable for Australians in 2019 to be having to deal with it. The problem is the system is always presented in a way that would leave people with the impression that it's really doing well. But beneath the surface, there is a system that is... Uh, experiencing great strain. Invest some money in the system. Take the tension out. Because if you don't invest new money in the system, it's going to be harder and harder and harder to fund new therapies. And I think you see that now. And certainly companies experience this on a day-to-day basis. These new therapies, precision medicines and personalised medicines and cell and gene therapies, their development is very different. A lot of them are being developed by smaller to mid-sized companies who currently have no interest in bringing their treatments to Australia. You know, they're going to the US and Europe to launch these therapies. Then they're going to the world's big private markets like Brazil and Mexico. And then they'll get here in the middle of next decade, maybe. If they can't see a return in Australia, they're not going to bother. So it's quite clear that we're lagging on an international stage in this way. This is part of the reason why we've seen so many Australians having to set up crowdfunding platforms to pay for treatments overseas. Because some people get treatments and their lives are saved from these new therapies that are coming out for cancer. We live in a system where we don't have a private payer system for therapy, TV, medicines or things like that in Australia. We have a government that takes that role, protects its role as the single purchaser and boasts about its role as the single purchaser. Right, well then I think you've got to fulfil that role and and we're going to judge you. We, We have a system where the federal government chooses to fund therapies uh, it's getting much, much tougher. So are you able to explain what the HTA is and how that interacts, where, where the balance is struck between them and the, P, the Pharmaceutical Board's Advisory Committee? So health technology assessment is kind of a loose term. It's, it kind of describes the process that uh, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee goes through here where companies make submissions based on pretty strict guidelines. These submissions are very long. They have very complex modelling in them. They basically take evidence from clinical trials, insert it into 
of a series of models and use that as the basis for evidence to secure reimbursement in Australia. And there's, mm-hmm. it's a high level of subjectivity in this process. You know, in the end, the PBAC, I've got a lot of respect for the people on that committee. I think it's a very hard job. But I think a lot of their decisions are based on do we want this therapy or do we not? It's a complete nonsense. This is just the system of judging therapies. And in the end, there's a lot of subjectivity in it. And, I'm, and we should be transparent about that. And we're not. And we're yeah. not. what we do is we get a lot of public debate, a lot of argument between pharmaceutical companies and the decision makers about very technical matters. And these discussions are so arcane and so technical, they're impenetrable for the public. You know, we've got to put this, I think it's important to put this in really simple terms. And industry has a responsibility in this to put this in really simple terms. What are they doing in this process? They are putting a dollar value on your life. That's effectively what they're doing. And then they're deciding whether or not extending your life by three to six months or even saving it is worth what they've been asked to pay. That is what this process does. How can you put a dollar value on someone's life? That life could be your partner, your brother, your sister, or your child's life. A question which dawned on me was, what happened to the large clinical trials that once we had with broader groups of cancer? There's more precision medicines in development now, and a lot of them have been described as tumour agnostic, so they don't treat a particular tumour. They, they, they treat people who have a particular genetic mutation now, the reality of this, this trial is that it's a phase two trial. So it's quite an early to mid-stage trial. There are only 100 patients in the trial and they have 15 to 20 different tumour types and different response rates. So this is really, really hard to put into an economic model or a submission that will be accepted by our decision makers. Mm. And these things is going to be very problematic for these to navigate our system because we are not going to be getting the sorts of evidence that companies were presenting 15 or 20 years ago. That's, those days are virtually gone. Companies are going to be very, developing very different levels of evidence now. Mm. And most, most decision-making bodies around the world are accepting that and modifying their decision-making accordingly. Even the TGA in Australia has modified its decision-making to accommodate that. So I think, I think that's a reality, and I would hope, and I'm reasonably confident that the Australian system will get there, but we are dealing with this legacy issue where our system is often described as world-leading, and it's just not. So how would you modify the system, given how much more we understand about cancer now? Uh, I would make more value judgments. Mm. You know, I think we, we, we have, you know, the national medicines policy here is pretty clear. So what, what do we want? Our objective is timely access in a way that's consistent with other countries. You know, they talk about affordability, but, you know, in my view on that, is that this is just a nonsense term. You know, things are as affordable as the government wants them to make. No one is suggesting the system's going to get blown up. It just needs, we just need to be realistic. I think governments need to accept that the levels of evidence are not going to be what they used to be, but the potential transformative impact for patients is like nothing we've ever seen. In today's environment, it's extremely unfair for people diagnosed with certain cancers, especially those that are rare. A lot of treatments that are coming out now are suited more for those with tumour agnostic cancers. Those people are only being reimbursed for certain conditions and parameters like CAR-T therapy. Some people are getting life-saving treatments and some people just aren't. Can you imagine a system where you, you had a heart attack and your neighbour had a heart attack and you went to a hospital and your neighbour got treated but you didn't get treated? 
Mm. Now, that's an extreme example, right? But that is how some patients experience the system. So the person in the room next to them can get access to a drug, and because their cancer is slightly different, they don't. And all because of the interpretation of an economic model that is highly variable. We cannot expect these global, these global companies, you know, Australia is 1% of the global market. No one is going to change anything for Australia. Yeah. You know, the, the, the course has been set in biopharmaceutical innovation. So we need to change if we want to accommodate it. If we want to be like New Zealand and not bother, then we should just come out and say it and not pretend we do. But yeah. I think politically that would be very hard to do. Because I think Australian patients expect a level of access which people in the US and Europe expect. Okay, let's take a second to clarify. There are cancer treatments that have been shown to be effective. They're not just based on anecdotal data from one particular person. There are effective treatments that have shown to be working internationally and have been recommended by medical teams here in Australia. And they have also been approved by the TGA. They've been recommended by the, approved by the TGA, but basically the government doesn't want to pay the price. Forget about all the talk about economic modelling and pharmacoeconomic evaluation. These therapies are effective because the TGA is determined to affect the regulator. The government just doesn't want to pay what the company is asking. And yes, they can be expensive. They can be very expensive. They can be five, ten thousand dollars a month. No doubt about it. But if you're talking about giving someone three, six, nine, twelve months, even several years more life. Man, it's, it's, why are we even discussing it? Mm. I can't think of any more important thing. But instead, what we do is we twist ourselves inside out. And I see, I saw some presentations last week at a conference in Sydney by some very influential decision makers in Australia. And to me, they seemed to do everything they could to make themselves look like something other than a human being mm. in terms of compassion for patients. In the end, sitting by the PBS, Medicare, public hospital funding, do not serve the people working in them. They do not serve companies or, or providers or clinicians. They are meant to serve patients. Paul has hit the nail on the head in one sentence. The PBS, Medicare and public hospitals do not serve the people working in them. They are meant to serve patients. The question that remains with us now is what can we do as a general public with an interest? How can we raise our concerns and apply pressure so that the government will create a fairer process and a more flexible system. So the challenge is, and I think patient groups and industry have a role in this, is to raise awareness that we have an issue. I think that requires a willingness to speak out. And a lot of stakeholders find that quite hard. If if we're going to construct a system that in 5, 10, 15, 20 years is what we think it should be in terms of serving the interests of patients, then it's worth speaking out now. Speaking out is the only way to create a fair system that supports all of those diagnosed and affected by this horrible disease known as cancer. That's part of the work that we do at Rare Cancers Australia. We advocate and provide a voice for those whose voice is not heard. Yeah, you can probably tell I'm pretty cynical about the system, you know, and I... I know Richard and Kate and Rare Cancers have been very outspoken over the years and you know, upset some, some people with their advocacy. And I think, I think the nature of our system is that if you're not upsetting people, well, that's the problem. It's about, you know, if we're, if we're debating a few thousand dollars here or there about someone's life, then I think we have a much bigger problem. And I think, I think that that's essentially what a lot of these discussions come down to, a few thousand dollars here or there. <laughs> As an Australian, I have to tell you, that, that makes me very uncomfortable. I think if you were going to invest in anything, 
it should be on trying to keep people alive. If people don't want it, don't, don't want treatment, that's fine. But if we have the opportunity to invest in a therapy that could keep someone alive for a few extra months, then we should do it. We should absolutely do it. And I, I don't think we should even be debating that issue. But the problem is, is we've got into a, we've got into a situation where it always comes down to, well, you know, should we be spending that money? Should we be spending that money? Well, that money's going to be spent somewhere in government. So, what else should they? What else should be prioritised over over allowing someone to spend more time with their family? Yeah, That's exactly. what I'd like to know. The resolution of these unfair systems that sit in Australian healthcare now sit with us, the general public, charities and advocacy groups looking for change and a fair process for all cancer patients. If we don't speak up and apply pressure, nothing will change. We'll have scenes from our next episode of Radio Rare after these words from our patient support team. patient support team know that a rare cancer journey is different. We understand it can be hard to find good information, difficult to connect with others in a similar situation, and that you might need someone to chat to about everything that's going on. We are here to listen. We understand rare and you are not alone. Contact our patient support team on 1800 257 600. time on Radio Rare, Dr Emily Isham will speak with carer Mohab Kamal as we highlight the important role of carers within the cancer community and acknowledge the daily stress that they are under. From there it was just meeting doctors and specialists and oncologists and trying to make a plan um, for going forward until the biopsy was done and they confirmed no, it's not a lymphoma, it's something called thymoma. The more we know about it and the more we were told um, how rare is it that it just impacts or affects one person in every one and a half million in our heads, that why her, why us, why, how did this, did this happen? Radio Rare is produced in-house at Rare Cancers Australia and is hosted by Dr. Emily Isham and me, James Matthews. Thank you to this episode's guest, Biopharma Dispatch founder and publisher, Paul Cross. The show is produced by me and Alex Smith. We are edited by Christine Coburn. Reporting by Dr. Emily Isham. And our episode music is from Audioblocks. To keep up to date with future episodes or listen to past episodes, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Deezer. Simply search Radio Rare or Rare Cancers Australia and click the subscribe or follow button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with written stories from patients, carers and information regarding rare cancers. Thank you for listening and we'll be back shortly with our next episode. Bye for now.